Well, I don't think that I need to convince you in the month of June in a Western country that we live in a world that dresses up sin as righteousness and justice. And because sin is true and beautiful and good in the eyes of the world, everyone is expected to get on board. Sin is not merely to be tolerated, but it's to be affirmed and celebrated. And so one writer says, a worldly culture makes sin seem normal and righteousness to appear strange. But the world was not so different in the first century in Asia Minor. In fact, it's always been this way. Thyatira didn't have a pride month, but the pagan world that Christianity was born in was steeped in sin. In particular, pagan idolatry and sexual immorality. And everyone was expected to get on board, to work as a tradesman in the first century and earn a decent living. You were basically expected to be part of a trade guild. And you were expected to show yourself, show your face, sorry, at these trade guild feasts. These feasts were provided, apparently, by the local pagan gods. And to participate in these feasts was really to pay homage to these gods. These feasts as well, when the wine got flowing, generally descended into debauchery. But this was all seen as normal and good. And those who refused to attend were seen as best, at best as prudish spoil sports, at worst dangerous to society. You see, the world is always looking through the wrong glasses. We all have a way of looking at things in the world. You can call it your worldview. You can call it your philosophy. Whatever you call it, you have a way of thinking about and seeing what is right and what is wrong, what's good and what's bad. And it's so conditioned by what the world believes that no one really stops to think about this. It's like when you've been wearing glasses on your face for so long that you forget they're there. But being a Christian means taking these glasses off, the glasses of the world, and putting on these glasses, thinking biblically about right and wrong, about what is true and what is false. And the book of Revelation in particular makes this clear. The book of Revelation is an apocalypse, not a zombie movie or or a movie about asteroids coming to earth. No, an apocalypse, literally a revelation. Jesus pulls back the curtain on reality and shows us how things really are. The Bible calls out sin as sin. It gives us a true understanding of what life is all about, of the the boundaries for sex and marriage, the goodness of male and female differences. It tells us what's truly wrong with the world and what the true solution is. And as Christians, the fact that we start to wear the right glasses is actually what gets us into trouble at times. Certainly the Thyatirans knew this. Our way of looking at the world is in conflict with their way of looking at the world. 
And so despite being able to see clearly, there's a temptation to compromise. There's a temptation to compromise. And until our lives here end on earth, there will always be that temptation. Look at verse 19 and 20 again. Jesus commends the Thyatirans in verse 19. And then he says in verse 20, but I have this against you that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel. They weren't engaging in the sin, but somewhere in the church, and they were tolerating them. They knew the truth and they lived by it, but they were beginning to tolerate untruth. One of their own was walking around handing out faulty glasses again. And she was teaching struggling saints that, you know, it's okay to compromise. It will make your difficult lives that little bit easier. Our pressure points are, of course, very different from what was going on in the first century. I don't know uh, that Davy has ever been invited to uh, the table of the God of construction and asked to pray to that God. No, of course not. But we can be tempted to soft pedal on difficult or offensive doctrines in evangelism. We might be tempted to slacken the standards of biblical behavior on our children or ourselves in an effort to get them or us to fit in more. But when we feel the pressure to compromise, as these first century Christians did, we have in fact taken the biblical glasses off. We, we see what the world has to offer as essential. We see their power to pressure us as unbearable and our savior starts to look small again. Our faulty vision needs corrected. But that's what Jesus is doing in this passage. He's correcting our understanding of who he is. He gives us a clear picture, first of all, of himself, the Savior. And secondly, he exposes sin for what it really is. And thirdly, he reminds us of the infinite value of our salvation. Far, far more amazing and wonderful than what the world has to offer if we would just compromise. And so we're going to consider these three things together by asking three questions. First of all, what does your Savior look like? What does your Savior look like? I've mentioned that the churches in Asia Minor were, were, were uh, located, sorry, in centers of idol worship. And Richard mentioned last week that emperor worship was taking place as well. And so if you were to say, hail Caesar or bless the gods, that seemed like the polite thing to do. After all, these gods apparently and Caesar had made your life safe and comfortable and provided for your income. And if you didn't get on board with that, they had the power to turn the screws on you, to, to punish you for, sh for not showing some simple patriotic gratitude. And so you can see that it would be very tempting to say Caesar is Lord, even though you didn't believe it in your heart. But Jesus reminds his hearers of this. He reminds them where true power lies. 
It's as if Jesus was saying to these Christians, you've forgotten what your Savior looks like. Look at me again and see, first of all, that I am the true Son of God. The true Son of God. Back in chapter 1 in Revelation, verse 14, Jesus is described as one like a son of man. And this is a clear reference, this has been mentioned already, uh, to the Son of Man passage in Daniel 7. The Son of Man was God's mighty messenger who was coming to deal with the enemies of God's people. And the Jews of Jesus' day rightly identify this Son of Man with the Son of God of Psalm 2. The Son of God in Psalm 2, again, was that coming figure, that coming saviour, that Christ, who was going to deal with God's enemies. And so the Son of Man is the Son of God. And Jesus is saying, that's me. I'm the true Son of God. Why did they need to remember this? Well, in their society, Caesar was the Divi Phileas, a son of the gods. And their local hero god was Apollo, the son of Zeus. But Jesus is saying, no, I'm the true son of God. My power makes earthly superpowers seem laughable. And it's as if, if we use the imagery of Psalm 2, it's as if the the nations are lining up like little clay pots marching to war, but Jesus wields an iron rod and he has metallic feet. They don't stand a chance. Jesus says, this is what I look like, the true son of God. Secondly, I am the true righteous judge. Again, Jesus is drawing on that vision in Revelation 1 and Daniel 7 when he says that he has eyes like a flame of fire. His eyes are pure and piercing. In a society that celebrates sin and calls it righteous, Jesus sees things for what they really are. And in one sense, his eyes are so holy that they can't bear to look on sin. But in another sense, there's no sin that escapes Jesus' sight. Verse 23, he is the one who searches mind and heart and he will give to everyone according to their deeds. Thyatiran Christians were under judgment from the court of human opinion. Human opinion about what was true and good and worthy and their neighbours saw when these strange Christ followers didn't attend the feasts and didn't pay homage to Caesar like they did and they excluded them. They departed to make their lives difficult and reduce their income. But Jesus alone is the one who has power to truly judge what is good and what is right what's deserving of commendation and what's deserving of condemnation. This is what your saviour looks like, Jesus is saying. So get your glasses back on. Think about and, and meditate on that vision 
in Revelation chapter 1. Remind yourself who the Son of Man is. Our children were showing their ability to memorize this morning. And yet it seems that whenever we grew up, we stopped memorizing Scripture. Well, Revelation chapter 1 might be a good place to start again. See who your Savior truly is. Secondly, let me ask, what does sin look like? What, what does your Savior look like? What does sin look like? Dad used to read, me and Andrew, Greek myths when we were growing up, and we loved them. And there's one story about the Greek hero Achilles. And when he was an infant, according to legend, his mother dipped him in the river Styx, and this made him immortal, except she was holding him by his ankle. And his ankle was the one part of him on one foot that didn't get touched by the water. And so that's where he was eventually mortally wounded. His, well, what we call now Achilles heel. No matter how strong or powerful someone is, really they're only as strong as their weakest point. In verse 19, the church in Thyatira receives one of the most glowing reports from Jesus. In fact, they've gone one better than the church in Ephesus, if you can remember them, because they have love as well as faith, service, patient endurance. Ephesus had lost their love. Sardis, who we'll be learning about next week, had the reputation of being alive, but they were dead. But Thyatira had a vibrant, growing faith. Their latter works exceeded the first but they had an Achilles heel. And so they were only really as strong as this glaring weakness. Ephesus had the truth without love, but Thyatira, well, they had love, but they were in danger of compromising on the truth. The church in Thyatira had forgotten the seriousness of sin. Not that the faithful believers were practicing these sins themselves, but they were willing to tolerate those who did in their own congregation. What they needed was to be reminded of what sin really looks like. Two things. First, sin looks like a deceptive prophetess. Jesus his criticism is that the church is tolerating a false teacher and he calls her Jezebel. Now this is, is almost certainly not her real name. Rather, Jesus is revealing her true nature. If you know your Old Testament well, you'll know who Jezebel was. She was the archetypal seducer of God's people. She wasn't a prophetess, but she sponsored just shy of a thousand false prophets in Israel and led her king and Israel astray into idolatry. And Thyatira had a prophetess in their midst who was in the ilk of Jezebel. She was maybe an influential woman who was gossiping or teaching after church or slipping it in in the women's Bible study. Perhaps she'd even tried to take the pulpit a few times. She claimed to teach deep things. Secrets hidden from the normal Christians given to her by God, but Jesus saw through her. 
He says in verse 20, she calls herself a prophet, but she has a false authority. She was actually teaching, verse 24, the deep things of Satan. (laughs) These things aren't from my father, Jesus was saying. They're from the father of lies. So what did she teach? We don't know the exact details, but Jesus does say that she, uh, verse 20, she's teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. And that's almost certainly a reference to those feasts of the trade guilds that I mentioned earlier. Uh, These feasts that had idol worship and descended into sexual immorality. Jezebel was teaching that it was okay for Christians to take part in this. Now, we don't know her motives either. Perhaps she's like one of the false teachers in 2 Peter chapter 2 who wanted to engage in revelry and so made excuses for it. I think it's more likely that she really just wanted to be able to fit in and wanted her brothers and sisters to be able to fit in. Being a Christian was difficult in the first century. And if she could give a reason for compromising, well, that would be good, wouldn't it? They would have a way out. But Jesus is saying that she's arguing from a false authority and she's teaching a false doctrine. The word seducing in verse 20, it literally means leading away. And it appears all throughout Revelation. It reminds us that sin is deceptive. This is what sin looks like. It's deceptive. And Satan works through human agents to deceive the world, if possible, even God's elect. He is, Revelation 12, 9, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Jezebel here, well, she's like Babylon, who we meet in Revelation chapter 18, the great city. All the nations were deceived by her sorcery. Babylon, simply code word for the world system that becomes Satan's deceptive mouthpiece for permitting what God has clearly forbidden, for calling good what God calls evil. What does sin look like? It looks like deception, a deceptive prophetess. Secondly, in Christ's warning of judgment, we see that sin offers a false security. We're asking, what does sin look like? And with the world's glasses on, it often looks like a safe bet. It looks like the sensible things to do. The psalmists often complain that the wicked prosper. And Jezebel and her followers are enjoying an easy life of being accepted socially and getting away with it. It looks like no consequences. But in fact, it's the patient mercy of Jesus Christ as he gives sinners time to repent. Verse 21, I give her time to to repent. She refuses. And so the next step, verse 22, is disciplining her by throwing her onto a bed of sickness, physical punishment. 
and her followers with her will receive a great tribulation. Note this phrase, unless they repent. Jesus is being patient. He's giving an opportunity. He's being gracious with them. But if no repentance comes, he will strike her children dead, her spiritual children, those who are following her teaching. Don't be fooled. Jesus Christ uses consequences for sin in this life to graciously warn us against the punishment that could come if we don't repent. Sadly, sinners are stubborn and we normally refuse to repent only by the grace of God. And this is the case with Jezebel, it seems. She's stubborn. And so if you're persisting in hidden sin, or if you've never actually bowed the knee to Christ in faith, don't kid yourself that you'll repent later. Don't kid yourself that you have time because the heart of man is stubborn and it's pride. And the longer we refuse to repent, the harder it is to repent. We are scorning the patient mercy of Jesus Christ who searches every mind and heart. What does sin look like? It seems to look like a safe bet, but it's stubborn and it's deadly and it's ultimately futile because one day the severe mercy of Christ will give way to his severe wrath. And verse 23, Christ says that all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. Jesus has been showing showing the church at Thyatira and us how things really are by having a true picture of the Savior and a true picture of sin. We can overcome the temptation to compromise in our faith. And in love as a church, we can overcome the temptation to tolerate those among us who might be compromising. Remember, this is addressed primarily not to Jezebel and her followers, but to those who aren't engaging in what she's doing, simply tolerating it. And so before we move on to our final point, let me ask, maybe you're not compromising, but are you tolerating those who do? Would you be willing to follow Jesus's difficult instructions for church discipline? In Matthew 18, if you saw a brother or sister, even a close family member or friend in sin or in error, would you be willing to lovingly take them aside and to rebuke them? Lovingly, privately, but still to do it. Are we willing to lovingly speak the whole truth, difficult doctrines and all, to our children as we teach them at age-appropriate levels, of course, but still. Or when that hot potato topic comes up at work, are we going to hide some of the whole truth? Or are we going to try and graciously, lovingly explain what we believe? Not what we believe, what the Bible teaches. 
Tolerance of sin is not love. We've asked what our Savior looks like and what sin really looks like. But finally, we ask, what does salvation look like? What does salvation look like? Another way of asking this question is, what does victory look like? And the world has many answers to this question. We just need to watch some TV adverts. The sports brand Nike have named themselves after the Greek goddess of victory, Nike. But I don't recommend going in and asking for a pair of Nike trainers. But I'm going to pick on them. This time last year, they released an advert called Best Day Ever. And it has over 60 million views on YouTube. And it's quite an inspiring advert. Its refrain is tomorrow. Tomorrow, a female sprinter will run 100 meters in less than 10 seconds. Tomorrow, a training shoe will finish growing from a seed and will pluck it off a plant. Tomorrow, we will celebrate new champions. Tomorrow, victory. Just keep buying Nike shoes. Cynicism aside about advertising and marketing, this advert is casting a vision of a world of equality achieved by humanity. Problems removed by technology. And we just can't wait to see what's next, the advert says. The world says that this is what salvation looks like. And for much of it, they're right. Justice will rule. Nations will cease to war. Humans will have satisfying work and overcome problems that they could never figure out in the past. They will achieve far more than they ever did before. But there are two subtle but deadly problems with the picture of salvation that this advert and the world paints. First, it promises final salvation in this life. A world still stained by sin. Second, there is no God, no Christ in this vision of salvation. The removal of the curse is achieved by humans without Christ. Salvation is a human victory, in other words. But Jesus gives us the true picture of salvation. True salvation, true victory means, first of all, Defeat, defeat in this world. In verse 26, as Jesus, well, Jesus says this to all of the churches, but he says, it's the one who conquers, who gains the heavenly promises. What does it look like for a Christian to conquer? Well, the text answers the question, or yeah, in verse 25, hold fast to what you have until I come. The one who conquers, who keeps my works until the end. That's who conquers. The one who holds fast in obeying Christ. And for the Thyatirans, that meant holding fast when others were compromising, dealing with those who were compromising. Now, in practice, that wouldn't look or feel like victory. Jezebel was persuasive. She had a platform. People were willing to go her way and enjoy the victories of the world. Peace and freedom and prosperity could come by compromising. And one day, 
we will enjoy peace and freedom and getting on with our neighbors and never falling out with them, never being in the midst of enmity. But God often calls us to forgo these good things now so that we can be good witnesses now. Conquering of sin involves being conquered by the world, being mocked, being laughed at, being excluded at times, being persecuted. But the church that perseveres in this witnessing faith wins a victory on earth, even though it feels like a defeat. And is this not the pattern of our Savior? What did he do on this earth? He was defeated at the cross, mocked, sneered at, ridiculed. And yet that defeat was victory. This is the pattern that he lays out for us and he gives us the power to walk this way. Our salvation looks like defeat in this world, but finally, it means reigning in the next world. What does Jesus promise to those who conquer by being defeated in this life? Verse 26 says, to him, I will give authority over the nations. Now, what does that mean? Well, verse 27 gives the answer. And it's an almost direct quote of Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. Let's read it. He, that's he who conquers, will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. Psalm 2, verse 7, is clearly talking about the Messiah, God's Christ. And yet Jesus says, Well, actually, I'm going to take this and I'm going to apply it to you. If you conquer, you will reign with me. And so those who who were judged by the court of human opinion in this life will somehow be involved in the judgment that Christ will bring on those who did not follow him or bow the knee to him. True victory is the removal of all who oppose God and his people. Sin and all of its curses, injustice, inequality, frustration, suffering, Christ does it. But amazingly, he will involve us at the end. That should blow our minds, that we could have a share in such an honor. This is none other than the promise of having Christ himself. Look at verse 28. And I will give him the morning star. The last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22, plainly teaches that the morning star is Jesus himself. Jesus is saying, I will give you myself. You will have a share in my rule and my reign because you will have me and I will have you. What does your salvation look like? The world promises the many good things of salvation, but they promise it now and they promise it without Christ. It's a false promise. But Jesus is the true sum of our salvation. By having a a true picture of the Savior, a true picture of our sin 
and a true picture of the salvation that awaits us, we can overcome the temptation to compromise in this life. So get your glasses on. Remind yourself what he looks like. Repent of your sin and place your hope in the salvation that is coming, which is him himself. Amen.